Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at Burrow.com slash ACAST. That's Burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello, and welcome to Building Sustainability Podcast. I'm your host, Jeffrey Hart, a.k.a. Jeffrey the Natural Builder. Building Sustainability consists of conversations with designers, builders, makers, dreamers and doers, exploring the wide world of sustainability in the built environment by talking to wonderful people who are doing excellent things. Hello and welcome to episode 44. This episode features Canadian author, educator, researcher, speaker and builder Chris Magwood. You may well be able to hear uh, the wind and the rain uh, here on the boat. The noise of uh, creaking ropes has been pretty prominent in this last week in the UK. Um, I'm trying to absorb and appreciate everything about boat life um, as I enter my last month of boat living. Plans for the tiny house are going really well. Uh, I've spent the last few evenings working out the weight of every available insulation versus its u-value to find this sub perfect ratio because the uh the trailer that i'm building my house on i can only put on 2.9 tons which sounds like a lot but it's soon adding up and it's quite frightening when you calculate exactly how much all of the things that you're going to put in a building are going to weigh so it's really interesting and it's bringing up some some key decisions like uh, UK wood shingles weigh twice as much as metal roofing, metal sheet roofing. But the metal manufacturing process creates so many more carbon emissions. So I'm trying to find this balance point uh, of what works. And it's it's really fun. It's fascinating to dig really deep into all the materials. Okay, so before I introduce Chris, uh, I just wanted to say a huge, huge thank you to the Patreon subscribers. Um, I honestly can't tell you how much your support means to me. Uh, give yourself a massive high five and know that I think you're a really incredible human being. For anyone that enjoys the podcast and wants to contribute to its running costs and maybe even pay me a little bit, uh, then head to patreon.com forward slash building sustainability. Uh, you can name your own price or go for the five pound level 
which gets you a hand-carved wooden spoon for eating your dinner with. Plus, there is bonus audio from the previous episodes for all subscribers. Okay, so, Chris Magwood. Uh, I was introduced to Chris Magwood by Emily Niehaus of Community Rebuilds. And she said, this is Chris Magwood, and he's a superhero of building. And how right she was. I'm not really sure how he manages to fit it all in. But he's built upwards of 50 straw bale houses, taught hundreds if not thousands of people to do the same. He's written some of the best natural building books and somehow managed to find time to go back into education and complete a master's degree in building science. And you know what? To top it off, he's a thoroughly lovely chap too, as you're about to hear. So I'm back at the end, but quick reminder that if this is your first time here listening, make sure you subscribe uh, to catch all of the future episodes and head back and listen to all the previous ones. Links are on the webpage. Enjoy the episode. Well, I started as a as a owner builder in uh, 1996, and then people very much started coming out of the woodwork when they heard about the house and say wanting to see it, wanting to talk about it, wanting to hear what I'd learned, and then um, started getting asked to help other people. and uh, And within a couple of years, uh, my partners um, Pete and Tina and I, who had all kind of dabbled in straw bale right around the same time, uh, formed a company and we, we built straw bale houses for the next 10 years. And so, and so how did Endeavor Center come about? Well, with, with our building company, we, uh, within the first couple of years started taking on one or two apprentices every year who, um, would sort of spend a season with us and learn lots and then go on and kind of start their own, um, their own company. We realized that we were, um, we were already really early on in our business turning down work because more people wanted these kinds of buildings than we could deliver. And so we started taking on these apprentices. And after the first year, we were getting you know, between 50 and 100 applications for this apprenticeship program that was never formally advertised, didn't really pay very well. And like people just heard about it and wanted to do it. And so that's when I realized like that there was, you know, it was great to be building, but, but teaching people how to do it was, you know, I was enjoying that part on site with the apprentices and realized that one or two people a year wasn't going to scratch the surface of the number of people who wanted to learn. So uh, I sort of parted ways with the, with the construction company and, and, uh, and started teaching full time. Yeah. Uh, Nice. And you, you've built a lot. Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> yeah. Website at your, yeah. Your portfolio. Have you, have you got what's your sort of estimate on how many? Um, how many um, between the Strawbale Company and Endeavor, um, it's upwards of fifty now. I don't. I have never done an accurate count, but so yes, yeah. you're, you're definitely a man of experience. Yeah, yeah, and uh, I don't think we've ever built anything the same way twice. So <laughs> you know, it's. <laughs> Every time out, it's been a, a, a new learning experience and, you know, sort of an iterative process of just trying to make it better every time. So I feel like there's that's still happening. It, you know, we're still not not at the point where it's like, okay, 
here's the perfect way to do this. So, um, yeah, always keen to just keep trying new things. Well, I, yeah, perfect is an illusion, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Yeah, <laughs> excellent. Um, so I've I've sort of loosely given this uh, this podcast the working title of how buildings are going to save the world, which I think is well what we're both uh, excited about. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess what I'd quite like to start with is hearing you talk about what maybe sort of the issues with the current built environment and the way we're approaching things and and sort of materials and things like that. Yeah. Yeah, I think that that has sort of morphed for me a little bit over you know the 25 years I've been doing this. It, it very much for me started as a as a resource issue and an energy efficiency issue. So when I built my first house, when I started looking at housing, I realized how sort of appallingly poorly insulated our buildings were, especially like we're in a very cold climate and our code at that time was, was pretty low on requirements for uh, kind of thermal performance. And, and then just sort of like looking at the range of materials that people were using and realizing that, you know, almost everything that went into a house was coming from some sort of threatened resource in some way or another, whether it was, you know, metals or timbers or, you know, petrochemicals, you know, like all of these things were sort of finite uh, materials that, um, so that was my, those were the first things that I was trying to kind of save the world by doing. And then I quickly started learning lots about the, the kind of chemical content and the health issues um, with those materials. One of our really early projects at Camel's Back Construction was for uh, three women who are building themselves a, a co-housing um, building. And the reason they had banded together was because they all had extreme chemical sensitivities. And so they came to us because they had thought that a straw bale house would be a clean building for them. But then they also wanted us to look at everything else that they were going to put in the house um, because they couldn't get anybody else to do that research for them or take it seriously. You know, they were just kind of getting shrugged off or laughed off by, by other builders. And when I, when they gave me the list of chemicals that they needed excluded from the building, and I started really researching all the things that even we, as what I felt was quite conscious builders at the time were putting in, it was horrifying to see, you know, the, the, just the sort of insanity of how, how laden with quite dangerous chemicals our buildings were then and and still are now. So that kind of added a piece to, you know, uh, to the save the world agenda. And then over the last decade, the, the sort of the, the climate impact of, of the buildings and the materials has also, you know, taken a real central stage for me. So, you know, we're now trying to put, like, how do you build, all of those things together um, so that you're not sacrificing any one of those criteria for the other. Cause that's what I see happens a lot in the building world. You know, people did get excited about high performance over the last couple decades, but they went down the high performance level and never thought about resources, never thought about, you know, chemical content, didn't think about owner health and didn't think about the climate. So they made really energy efficient buildings. And then over on this side, you had people, really attuned to the chemical content but building inefficient buildings and you like it's just 
you know, how do you, how do you bring all of that together so that it's, you're not just pursuing one, one narrow vision, but, but you're, you're building so that you, you're addressing all of those. And I don't know if building that way saves the world, but it certainly stops it from <laughs> spiraling, uh, in quite the same speed it's spiraling right now. So, Yeah. <laughs> I um I lived in BC for uh, for five winters, and the range of houses I lived in were you know from little old shacks uh, to to fairly new build. But never did I think they were as insulated as uh, they should have been for you know what was pretty much six months of snow. Mm-hmm. Yeah, are you sat in Canada's greenest home right now? Is that is that your? Uh, I am. Yeah. Nice. I wondered if that was that was your house. Mm. I was intrigued by your use of the word green in the sort of promotion of that that house. Mm. Um, I certainly over here, green has sort of become one of those words which has been sort of taken over by by sort of all the the companies wanting to appear like they're they're making a difference but actually doing nothing. Um, and I wondered if that was a deliberate choice of wording to sort of appeal to a a bigger market yeah i mean you know we we sort of attached that nickname this project happened in 2012 um Mm -hmm. and so yeah it felt like at that time i it wouldn't have been like my word of choice necessarily um and i think i know i struggle and and all of us at endeavor struggle with what 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 are the words to describe what we're doing but yeah, we really did want this building to um, get some attention, not just from the sort of natural building niche world, but from, you know, the the sort of larger construction industry and sort of wider uh, slice of, of society. And so, you know, at that point, you know, green was kind of the 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 word in the industry at that time. And so we just we just kind of wanted to put it out there and say, well, we're the greenest. <laughs> so come check it out. <laughs> uh, you know, and there, you know, there was no real, well, that's not true. We set up our own criteria to, you know, we didn't want to just do that thing of, well, we'll just make up this name and, and do this. You know, we set some criteria around all of those things. I said, like, you know, it was like a, a passive house level, you know, of performance. Um, it had zero, uh, chemical content inside the building, you know, like we, we actually set goals that, that we said, well, this is why we're calling this the greenest home, because if these are the things by which greenness is ranked, we haven't Mm -hmm. seen anything, you know, better than this. So, um, my partner in, in, in Endeavor is highly uncomfortable with that, (laughs) with that, uh, that terminology. So, yeah. Yes. Yeah. It was. It was a debatable uh, thing, even even within Endeavor, let alone outside. So. <laughs> I'm interested by this sort of looks of the house because, again, it feels like you've you've gone for that that sort of conventional look, uh, but I'm assuming very much you know under the surface it's uh it's all the things that you know you've just spoken about yeah yeah so our our real intent was to to sort of make the the kind of like natural building sleeper house you know because i think a lot of people when they hear about greenhouses and especially if you attach the word sort of natural building to it there's this instant association with you know the cob hut and the hobbit house which i actually you know i have no issue with that at all 
but it's not what everybody is interested in. And there's, you know, what we wanted to do is show that all of those same materials and all of those same principles, you can put them together. And I mean, the houses were in the middle of a city uh, on an urban lot. Uh, it's an infill house. So what we wanted to do is say, you can do all of that stuff, like all of that great stuff that comes out of the natural building world and plunk it right in the middle of a city and fit in and not sacrifice any of those, any of those ideals in order, in order to do that. Yeah. It's, uh, there's definitely to some people that, that sort of, you know, curvy, uh, aesthetic is, is like the dream. And then to other people, it's, it's, you know, just disgusting. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, it's just hitting them at, at what is sort of normal to them. Yeah. Uh, and I, I think I've, what a focus of mine is sort of making homes, which, you you don't even call them an eco home or you know a green home. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, it just so happens that it's not going to kill you. And, yeah, <laughs> you know, it's going to keep you warm. Um. So what um what is it that makes this home green? Um. Well, it's it is uh, extremely energy efficient. This was the first uh, place where we were able to use. It's mostly a straw bale house, and mm-hmm. it's the first time we were able to kind of combine straw bale and clay plasters with a really high level of air tightness. So, you know, we actually um, hit the passive house level of air tightness uh, with these natural materials. Um, so, you know, it performs really well. Uh, there's no fossil fuel use in the building at all. It's, it's electrified. Um, we, we produce as much energy as we use in the house Um PV panels and solar hot water. Um, we've got a, a really great um, air exchange system, so the air quality is really high. Like I said, we we vetted all the interior materials really carefully, so there's like absolutely no questionable chemical content inside the building. Um, we have, yeah, I mean, I guess those would be the those would be things. And we did it we did it on a really reasonable budget, so it wasn't like you know it's just spending whatever it took to achieve that it was let's do this you know at, at a price that everybody can uh you know that that they sort of in the market range for for our area yeah um would you say that well did you go for living building challenge with this build well that's that's what we started with the idea was we were going to um to get living building challenge uh certified so the design was done with all of those principles, um, you know, the material selection. We ran into a few um, issues with the Living Building Challenge standard, uh, as it was at the time. Um, in particular, w- you know, we had made a decision that all the subflooring in the building would be um, a tongue groove pine rather than plywood or anything with, because uh, we couldn't, at that time, we couldn't get a plywood that didn't have formaldehyde glues and sort of built right into the living building challenges, no formaldehyde, but then they make an exception for plywood because at that time you couldn't get it without. And so we made this decision to go to a local lumber yard or local lumber mill and get this one by eight pine for the flooring, but they weren't FSC certified. And so, you know, we kind of chose actually not having formaldehyde over 
having an FSC certification on the floor. So there were a few material things like that, where it's like, we felt like we actually made the choice that we were more comfortable with, but it didn't meet their criteria at the time. Um, And also the, I really like the living building challenges take on sort of water and being water independent. Um, But I think for very good reason, the city here doesn't want like, septic systems in the city, which is basically how you would get uh, a living building challenge thing done. And, and that's another place where I sort of disagreed with them. It's like, you know, we had a composting toilet system, so we wouldn't have been sending black water to the, to the city's waste uh, system, but our gray water would have been going to, well, it does go to the city, but I sort of feel like, well, I'm using, you know, living building challenge is fine with me using the electrical grid to, you know, it's a public facility that where I can put my power on and take my power off, but there's this public, other public infrastructure that could take my gray water and is already set up to treat it. And I don't think it makes any sense for every single house in the city to have a giant concrete tank and a weeping field and plastic pipes. Like, so, you know, between, between all the places where we kind of disagreed, you know, there wasn't much of a certification left, but it was an amazing, amazing, like guideline to work with, you know, I would say yeah. with the exception of the wastewater um, and, and the plywood and a few other things, you know, we didn't really diverge at all, but those were large enough issues that the certification wasn't possible. But I, mean, I guess you've, you've taken the sort of principles and the, uh, the intention Mm-hmm. And you, know, I, I saw you talk at the um, the Strawbell Conference in Colorado, and you were saying that you it was like a one person's full time job to be researching and and mm-hmm. pulling in all the information for it. So yeah, you know, the the sort of learning from that must have been immense. It was yeah, it was really helpful, and it, it mapped really closely to what we already kind of do at Endeavor. I mean, but yeah. it was great to see it that that well laid out you know we had kind of been doing those exact same things with not just a notion that we were doing the right thing but not not as not as well structured a a way to ensure that we were doing those things so Mm -hmm. it was it, it made for a really great map that way nice and is it is the living building challenge something you've you've sort of continued with your work or is it um, no, we've never, we've never tried to certify again. Um, because I think, you know, I feel like we would run into a lot of the same issues, um, mm. where they make exceptions. We don't make exceptions <laughs> and where we make exceptions, <laughs> they don't make exceptions. So, you know, um, but I feel like, you know, we, with, with the, with our full-time course, you know, we, we really teach the living building challenge. We, and we look at the project we're doing with our class that year through that lens. And we, you know, the discussions in the class end up being about why we vary or where we vary, but, but we're, we're still very much, you know, using that kind of roadmap to, to, to show people uh, who come and take a course, what we're doing and why. Uh-huh. Sorry, I know that this is quite an old project for you, but we're talking about it quite a lot. But we'll we'll get on to some newer stuff. I mean, I guess um, what what would be interesting to me is to know um, 
what what sort of lessons have been learned just by living in the house? And you've had quite a few years of of data now. So. Yeah, it's been really interesting. Like there haven't been any issues. It's it's been really surprising. Right. Or actually, the issues that there have been. It's not that there haven't been any. Had nothing to do with the the sort of you know green or sustainable natural side of things. All the shower controllers gave out at one time or another. Um, you know, there's been there have been things like that. Um, but um, in terms of any of the of the sort of green components of the house, you know, there has there haven't been any issues. Um, the heating, the ventilation, the solar, like all of that stuff has. Oh no, actually that's not true. Squirrels ate all the wires off the back of our solar panels. <laughs> okay, yeah. Um, and now the code actually meet like are, the code to install solar on a roof in Ontario is now you have to close it in with a screen because it wasn't just us. It happens all the time. So um, that that came up. But, you know, again, that's not sort of special to, to this house and the way we built it. But sure. I was interested to to know because uh, it's a, a SIP panel, isn't it? Uh, construction. Yeah, yeah. So we built we built like prefabricated straw bale wall panels to to build mm-hmm. most of the house. And what was your thinking? What was your sort of reasoning for for that over a a sort of uh, you know a bale infill or or something similar? Well, there were some practical concerns. We are a, we are a, an urban infill, and we're a full two story house. So the notion of trying to stack bales, you know, on site with not enough room to put scaffolding between our house and the next house, you know, there were just some really practical concerns. Um, but also we had, we had built panels with our class uh, for some earlier projects and just felt like if, if there was really going to be a way to make straw bale building in particular accessible to a wider market, that it was going to be in that form where, you don't have to source the straw. You don't have to learn how to plaster. You don't have to train a whole crew on a whole new way of building. Just these squares arrive, they get plunked down in place. You bolt them to the floor and you move on. That just seemed like, you know, a much, a much more likely scenario for, for something like straw bale building to, to hit a wider audience. Yeah, definitely. It seems to be the way that, but a lot of people are taking it, certainly mm-hmm. sort of ModCell and EcoCocon. And yeah. Whatever. Yeah. I mean, it's something I haven't haven't yet done, but it seems, yeah, it seems to me like the, the, the push that the industry sort of needs. Yeah. Yeah. And, and we've lately been making our panels without any plaster. Uh, but when we're making these plastered ones, you know, it also here in Ontario, plastering is not a profession. Like nobody knows how to do it. It's never been a common trade here. And so that was a huge barrier to straw bale construction in Ontario was our company was literally the only company, if you didn't want to plaster it yourself, we were your option and we could only do you know, a certain number of houses in a year. And so with the panels, you know, all the plastering is done with the panel lying flat and there's literally no skill to it. It's like pouring a sidewalk. You pour the plaster on, you screed it across the panel and you've got this one coat really flat you know, plaster system done in minutes instead of hours or days. So um, it really kind of like spoke to that side too of, of making it more accessible. Yeah. 
yeah definitely uh, so so what happens at the the joins in a, a pre-plastered system well we've we've actually treated it a whole bunch of different ways um at this house what we actually did was just drywall right over all those joints um mm. again that was sort of a, a nod to how do you make this system accessible to a, a sort of more mainstream contractor don't ask them to deal with plaster joints you know they all have drywallers or or do the drywall themselves and so you give them a really nice flat surface they come in they put their board on and they kind of treat it like that so we have two ends of the house where we did use the plaster because i wanted to see it <laughs> but mm-hmm. um in general um a lot of it was was just drywalled and then externally what have you got there uh it's sided with a combination of like horizontal wood and cedar shingles mm-hmm with uh, with some sort of membrane behind or yeah yeah with like a, a sort of air barrier membrane yeah and it's there's yeah. a plaster on the straw on the outside too so it's you know the straw is all covered that way and then we kind of strapped on top of that and made a rain screen scenario yeah. for the siding nice yeah I mean, that while while we're talking about that i i guess a question that comes up a lot for me and i just saw a raging argument in uh the natural homes uh facebook page about uh, about eco cocon actually because they were they were you know sort of promoting their their panels with a a uh well i, can't, I don't think it was a i think they use a wood fiber board right they do like um a wood fiber board yeah cladding well, on the, the issue, outside the issue was a there was a, a sort of plastic membrane uh offered as an optional optional right. thing and uh and so there was the the argument between the you know the pure naturals and uh plastic you know right so i was wondering where you sit on that um you know we we try to build with as little plastic as possible but i'm not such a purist that you know if i see that 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 very thin membrane layer and i'm sure eco cocoon is smart enough that it's a smart permeable layer as well um is somebody would have to also tell me that they've decided not to have plumbing, not to have a refrigerator. Like, okay, if you're going full life plastic free, then then you can argue the plastic membrane. But if 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 your house has any other plastics and this is a real solution that is, you know, provides meaningful performance to that building and makes a straw bale building possible for some people, I would go with the plastic membrane. You know, it's it's not you know, my fridge probably has more plastic in it than the membrane that goes around the outside of my house. My PEX plumbing definitely does. You know, it's the plastic coating on all my electrical wiring. I mean, if I'm going to be a purist, <laughs> mm-hmm. I shouldn't have those things. And if I'm going to have those things, then to me, that's more of a choice. You know, you could you could choose a, a way to do the building that doesn't have it. But I wouldn't say, well, you shouldn't do it because it has uh, like, you know, fraction of a millimeter's worth of of a plastic coating on it. We'll be back after a quick break. Hey there, I'm Mick from the Mick and Pat Show. That's right, and I'm Pat. Looking for a podcast that's like catching up with old friends? Well, you're in luck. We're here to bring you weekly doses of lifestyle commentary, discuss culture and politics, and top it off with the occasional beer and film reviews. But it's not just about us. We're a community. Our listeners are our kin, and we let you all have a say in what we discuss. So saddle up and join the conversation at the Mick and Pat show. You can check out our website or find us wherever you get your podcasts. 
that's uh, that's good to hear so i've been uh, i've been wrestling with it uh because all pretty much all the buildings i've ever built have been hemp or straw or something that gets a you know a, a render and a, a plaster to to be an airtightness layer but this tiny house i'm building because it's going to be moving around i don't really want to rely on plaster for that because mm-hmm. you know, i think the movement's prone to cracking yeah. so for the first time i'm you know i'm looking at at an airtightness you know barrier uh, membrane and feeling a little bit icky about it but also you know if we're looking at performance then and this might be a sort of a segue into the carbon footprint things but if you know i guess you know the question would be what is somebody's um reason for not wanting that plastic layer and there's a performance side where if that's really just a sheet of impermeable poly and it's on the outside of your wall, you're probably going to actually cause damage to the wall. So it's like, okay, like you got to be smart about what that layer is. Um, but, you know, if, if that layer is going to make my building airtight and airtightness makes such a huge difference to the energy performance of a building, like people get obsessed with insulation and it's like, you can you can insulate five feet thick if you want, but if your building's not airtight, that five feet of insulation doesn't do like it works to a certain point, but the air leakage just takes over and becomes that's where you're losing your heat. And so, you know, if that if that plastic membrane is well applied and ups the level of performance of the building and saves, you know, either on the need for more insulation or on fuel and energy to heat and cool the building for the rest of its lifespan, it, you pretty much guarantee that it's worth <laughs> the, the investment of, of you know, yeah. that amount of resource and, and, uh, and carbon pollution to, to achieve the results on the other side. I, I saw a, a talk from Craig White uh, from Mudsell uh, and Agile Homes and all the other yeah. things he's involved in. Uh, but he was, he talks as well as sort of carbon sequestering. He talks about plastic sequestering and keeping plastic out of the environment, which I think to me felt like it was pushing it a little bit. <laughs> uh, but, but I thought it was quite a nice, uh, you know, made, made a nice graph at least. Yeah. <laughs> Great. So, I mean, we, we've sort of, you know, we're, we're heading on to it there, but talking about, you know, building, saving the world, you know, some buildings are going to be, very sort of carbon intensive both in use and and uh to build like what what do you see as as uh kind of the the way forward in that um well i mean without being too flippant uh everybody needs to build with straw bale (laughs) (laughs) okay um or or more generally you know the if we can if we can start to think about our buildings as places to meaningfully store carbon that was in the atmosphere very recently and we can get it into our buildings for a long period of time that like that, you know, that is uh, an incredible contribution to, to the climate issue. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I mean, globally, if we did that, well, it's, it's at a gigaton per year scale uh, given how much we're, we're building like possibly multiple gigatons a year. Um, and it, it sort of has a, a double benefit of, you know, a lot of that egg residue either gets burned off, in which case the carbon goes back to the atmosphere immediately, or it's kind of rotted off, in which case it goes back to the atmosphere immediately 
and some of it as methane, which is a more potent greenhouse gas. So you kind of stop that from happening and you put it in buildings where it's it's not going to end up back in the atmosphere for, if we do it smartly, a few centuries. Um, and if we haven't got our climate act together <laughs> within the lifespan of a, of a decently built building, you know, I mean, I get asked that a lot. It's like, oh, what happens at the end of the lifespan of all these buildings? It's like, well, let's, <laughs> let's get there. Like if we're putting a lot of carbon away in buildings and we actually like are all doing okay and surviving in a hundred years when these, the carbon starts to come out of these buildings, we will have figured out how to take the carbon out of the buildings in a decent way. I mean, already you can say, well, turn it into biochar. You can, you know, that's one of the reasons I'm really excited about panelized systems is, you know, if we make not just a panel that's easy to install, but a panel that's easy to uninstall, then the carbon I've stored in that panel outlives the building it was in, you know, when it's, when this building is done, most of our buildings, we tear down, not because they failed, but because we just don't want that building in that place anymore. Um, so make carbon storing buildings that you can dismantle and reassemble somewhere else, or that the parts can be used in, in other places. Now we've got 200, 300 years of storage, you know, that feels adequate for <laughs> addressing the climate but yeah i mean i did i did you know just a really quick um bit of research where i looked at how much grain straw is grown annually so you you know un statistics on uh wheat oats barley you know rye like the typical grain straws and the straw portion the part that we don't eat is over 2 billion tons a year so just those crops have brought all the carbon emissions of the country of India out of the atmosphere this year, put it into tubular straw form that makes a great building material. And we just don't do anything with it. We just burn it up and put it back into the atmosphere. And it's like, we could literally be drawing down India's emissions annually, just with plants that we've already planted. And that's just straw. That's not coconut or rice or hemp or like uh palm kernels or like it's you know there's there there are literally like you know billions and billions of tons of ag residues that would make great and do make great building materials people already make stuff out of these things um that if if our building industry moved in that direction you know it would go from being one of the worst uh, offenders in in what happens to the climate to literally like reversing climate change with buildings and saving the world. I get really ex excited about that notion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, thank you for that because that has been uh, irking me a lot. So I did. Uh, Sukita came on the the podcast and we talked about earth floors, and uh, one of the, the mm. Facebook comments when uh, when I posted it was someone saying because I'd said you know they're the most sustainable floors kind of flippantly as like a you know uh, as a promotional tool but someone replied well I'd rather use a wood floor because it's sequestering carbon and I got into a big muddle because yeah because of that what happens at the end of the life if it's you know if it's going to be rotted or mm -hmm. you know burnt or, or disposed of that wooden floor yeah 
it's it wood is tricky because you know whereas i think or i'm very confident that we can attribute meaningful storage to to sort of annual agricultural residues wood isn't necessarily the same thing because um if you just left the forest alone uh, there's a good chance that more carbon would get stored by not cutting down the tree than by cutting down the tree and putting it in a building. Mm-hmm. So, whereas at the end of that, the the farm season, the growing season, that straw is getting cut down. Like it's, it has no more growth to offer and it's going to get replanted next year. And so like that's real carbon storage. Carbon comes out of the atmosphere one year, goes in a building, comes out of the atmosphere the next year, it goes in a building. But with with timber, it's much harder to say that that's the case because uh, a kilogram of carbon atoms in my wood floor, that sure, there's carbon in my wood floor, but how much of the tree didn't make it into my floor? You know, it's typically about half a tree doesn't make it into the product. And so all of that carbon went back into the atmosphere. So already at best, I'm carbon neutral uh, in my floor. And if carbon came out of the forest floor when that happened, uh, like when the harvesting happens, that's an emission that counts against my floor. And if the stalks of the forest, the, the actual carbon stock of, the, of our forests globally are getting smaller, the fact that we're sticking that dead carbon in our buildings, but our live carbon stocks are getting smaller, it doesn't, it, it doesn't necessarily balance out. I think we could probably manage our force in a way that would allow us to say the wood floor is storing carbon, but I don't treat a wood floor the same way I treat a straw wall or a hemp wall or you know, any other fiber that, that is on a short cycle and is, is basically a, um, a residue of a, of an existing process. Uh-huh. So presumably you're sort of, you're not counting like a coppice product, uh, in that, that sort of timber. No, I guess a, a coppice thing would be, would be different. You'd have to look at it differently. I think generally when we look at timber, very little of it is, you know, is a coppice product. It's mostly, yeah. you know, actual cutting down of trees but yeah i think you would look at that differently and bamboo kind of fits somewhere in between those things and cork where you know it's a six to ten year growing cycle which which is a lot shorter than a timber cycle and the period of of like the the speed of regrowth is a lot faster um also you know with bamboo it's a rhizome so you don't disturb the the the, the soil carbon in the same way when you cut it down, but it, you know, the, the longer the, the, the longer the regrowth period, there's sort of like a, not a penalty, but you, you'd sort of discount the carbon storage slightly based on how long it takes something to regrow. So it's like sure. the, the annual ag products that, that kind of have the, the, the highest return on, on sort of uh, putting them away as carbon storage. And then what's, I guess what's interesting to me is that while I love building with straw, I'm also quite conscious that it's a monocropped uh, you know, product. It's quite, you know, it's, yep. it's part of our, you know, a really unsustainable food growing uh, uh, method. How do mm-hmm. you sort of, 
how do you balance that? Well, I sort of feel like, you know, there's there's kind of two two parallel pressures going on right now with with so you know I'm sort of looking at it from the building side and me deciding to either build or not build with straw or even 10,000 of me doing that doesn't change industrial agriculture. Um, but as the pressure builds on people to, to work with materials like straw, there's also pressure building up for the agriculture industry to get better at managing soil carbon and things like that. So, you know, there is a, a lot more going on now with like no-till farming and, you know, people planting, you know, uh, underlayer crops and things like that, where I feel like if we're all taking climate seriously, I'm not a farmer and I'm not in the ag business, so I'm not going to address their problem. But I feel like if I'm addressing the building side by, you know, paying farmers for this stuff, that that helps support an agriculture industry that's also capable of changing. Like if I can change the building industry, they can change the agriculture industry but I can't feel responsible for both. Uh, yes. But if I can support the farmers, uh, you know, and I can, I right now with my straw choices, I can make that choice. I can support an organic farmer and buy their straw. I can support, you know, somebody whose practices I can go and see and, and understand and know about. Um, so I think, you know, yeah, the, the, the source of those things and the, where they're available and how much they're available are likely to change. But given that we all are still going to be eating <laughs> in the future uh, and we're going to be growing plants to eat um, and those plants are going to have an awful lot of leftover fiber, we're always going to be able to figure out a way to do it. And so if right now it's monocrop wheat straw, I will use that. And if in 10 years it's, fabulous organic you know uh, multi-story harvested you know carbon storing straw crop of some kind i will use that but it's i think you know it, it's always going to be there unless we decide yeah. to stop eating definitely have you um have you heard uh there's a over here there's uh some people growing miscanthus which is a perennial grass which grows okay yeah really 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 yeah tall. super tall yeah um yeah and they've been bailing that up and and have tried a few buildings out with it um yeah, yeah. it's it's exciting the way that uh people are, are starting to look at you know things that grow and and how they grow and how what the sort of beneficial uh, mm -hmm. yeah i have some some bales in the shop right now that are switchgrass bales and the switchgrass is being grown as a rotational crop in in order to build up the soil carbon for other crops so it's like a you know somebody will put a field into three years of, of switchgrass rotation that that root structure builds up the, the the soil carbon really well i get three years of bales for my buildings and then then they return it back to to wheat production you know uh, after that rotation so like i think however farming develops you know uh, an ag-based building system can develop with it and if i'm building with switchgrass bales or miscanthus bales or you know whatever it happens to be um there will always be a source of those things i just noticed yeah. um gramatherm which i think is a swiss company 
they're making okay. an insulation bat literally out of grass and they um they have contracts to cut uh, highway ditches and airport runways and that's what they're putting into the insulation <laughs> you know so i think there's just all this fiber growing all over the place and if we're clever we can you know make really good use of it and, yeah yeah don't get too attached to your one fiber, but to the, but to the idea of, you know, of using those things. Yeah, that's great. And there's, yeah, there's so many different opportunities to, if we just look around us, uh, just having that. Yeah. I had that happen with, um, we were having an issue for a few years. Um, there stopped being a source of, um, hemp herds for us here in Ontario, the, the farms that had been growing it and processing went under for various reasons that, you know, but uh, I was taking the sunflowers out of my own garden at the end of the season. And I was like, I think if I chop this up, I will get the same thing as, as hemp herd. And I did. And like, you literally couldn't tell the difference between that and hemp herd. And, you know, in North America, we grow like uh, 10 million acres of sunflowers every year. And the stalks just, again, get thrown out. And it's like, yeah. Okay. So I won't make hempcrete. I'll make sunflower crete. <laughs> you know, it's like, where is, where is that fiber? You know, where does it exist? Yeah. It, and if you look around, yeah, it's there somewhere and, and we can figure out how to put it to, to some decent use. And great in that example, that it's a, uh, you know, what would be a waste product, it, you know, to, to make a co-product mm-hmm. is, is so much more, more well-rounded in terms of you know, what we're getting. Yeah. Can we talk about embodied carbon? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So sure. Yeah. It, it feels like uh, certainly in the UK or certainly away from the sort of hippie building world that I that I started in, in sort of you know, America was really big on embodied carbon. And then I came back to the UK and was sort of much more immersed in the, the sort of more building science world. And it seems like that's only just now really being picked up and, and shouted about is you know, that we need to look out for our, our embodied carbon or upfront carbon as I, you know, some, it's sort of mm-hmm. Lloyd Alter was saying we should, uh, we should be looking at that, calling it that. Yeah. Um, what's your, yeah. What's your, your thoughts on, on that? Yeah. I mean, that's, that's been my obsession for the last, I guess, probably five years. Um, I, I, which started with trying to, calculate that sort of upfront carbon footprint of, of our own projects here at Endeavor and both like early on, like in this house in 2012, when I tried to do it, I just couldn't find enough data to even take a stab at it. Um, I then came across the, the um, inventory of carbon and energy database, which is from the university of Bath, which was kind of like the first free publicly available uh, kind of database of that. And I started using, using that on our buildings, even though, you know, there's probably some differences between how things are made in, in the UK and here, but, um, and it was really shocking. Like it, it really made me see buildings in a very different way, um, where suddenly when you see the, the sort of climate impact of the making of things like cement for concrete, like foam insulation, those things where suddenly like their proportion of the carbon footprint of a building is massive and, you know, uh, taking, getting away from those or minimizing the use of those, 
suddenly, you know, you can bring the carbon footprint of a building way down. And then kind of what, what I'm now fascinated with is what we've just been talking about on the other side of that, there's this whole carbon storage side. So, you know, you can lower the actual carbon footprint, the actual emissions associated with making the materials. And then if you put in a bunch of materials that have meaningful carbon storage, you, you can kind of net your building out or even make it a sort of net store of carbon. So when you kind of do all the accounting, all the, all the emissions minus all the storage, you can, you, you can sometimes, um, and you know, this is what the natural building world has been doing so effectively for so long without realizing <laughs> that, you know, we've been doing exactly what the climate needs us to do, which is minimize the polluters and maximize the carbon stores and, you know, we have these buildings that are, that are literally, I can make a building that the climate is in better shape at the end of my building than it was at the start. Like I've, there's more atmospheric carbon in my building. And so therefore less in the atmosphere than before I started this project. And, you know, that's, to me, that's super exciting to, to kind of get away from the building industry sort of reductionism of like, oh, let's reduce our impact by 10% or 20%. It's like, no, how about let's just reverse it? <laughs> let's just not not, like not have an impact and actually do some good rather than than just like try to creep like slightly lower in our in our impacts. Yeah. Yeah, there's a there's a really great graph in your uh what was it building as a climate change solution thesis uh from the, the Builders for Climate Change white paper. Uh, which mm-hmm. which shows the the embodied uh, or upfront carbon, you know, from day one, there it is. It's a set amount, and it's going to stay there forever. Yeah. And it was you were estimating about sort of ten years until the 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 sort of car in use carbon is is actually catching up to that point. Yeah, or or never. Like you know, if you it's it's about it's yeah, it can be sort of like five to ten years if you're continuing to make a sort of less efficient building that's heated with fossil fuels. But if you actually are using renewable energy and your building's really efficient, you know, it will go on being a carbon storage vessel for a couple of centuries. So, yeah. Um, yeah and I think that's, it, it got ignored for so long because we used to be so carbon intensive with our buildings. Like they were so, poorly performing and we use so much fossil fuel that it's when people looked at the the contribution of the materials it was like oh that's tiny but as we've as we've squeezed the the operating emissions down now when you look at at the at the the sort of upfront emissions from the materials it's like oh that's really big you know and in some cases it's the it's the biggest slice of of the overall pie versus you know kind of being this this little bit upfront I, I had to deal with quite a few uh, people that were building their their passive homes, you know, and I was asking them about their construction, and it's like, well, it's a big concrete box, you know, and we've got thermal mass is important with loads of concrete yeah. down, yeah, <laughs> and we've wrapped it in yeah. foam, and I was like, oh, how are you, how are you missing the point so badly? Uh, but it was, mm. you know, it just seemed like it was it was the way that everyone was building for a while. Yeah, yeah, and it's been really interesting, like you know, I've, I've been out sort of presenting at passive house and sort of high performance conferences. And that message about the importance of the material emissions 
some people have been very dismissive, but but for a, a surprising number of people have been like, oh, I need to change what I'm doing then. Like I, I thought there was going to be a lot more resistance and and sort of pushback. But when I start presenting the data, like because mo- most of the people in the passive house movement, they're in it for the right reasons, mm-hmm. you know, like they they have the climate and the planet in you know, in their hearts, or they wouldn't be doing this crazy thing that they're doing. So when, when it sort of like gets demonstrated that, well, if you do it in this particular way, you're not actually having the effect you thought you were like you, you're, you're causing these unintended consequences. And if we look at those, it, it, what you're doing doesn't pan out, but it's not that passive house doesn't pan out because, you know, in, in, in our buildings and in my study, the best results were, build a passive house with carbon storing materials. Like it's, then you've kind of got this win-win going on of way reduced operating emissions and, you know, either low embodied carbon or your carbon storing, like that's, that's the winning scenario. So it's not, it's not like saying, oh, passive house is terrible. It's, we shouldn't be doing it. No, we should all be doing it. We should just be doing it and paying attention to the materials that go in. Yeah. Which kind of loops us around to where we started. Like, and pay attention to what's the chemical loading of the materials we're putting in and where did they come from and what were the conditions for the people who put them in yeah. you know like you you bring all these criteria together and it's like that's real you know whatever you want to call it green building sustainable building natural building it's like it's where you look at the whole picture you know because yeah. you don't want to do one of these things that unintentionally causes all kinds of havoc in these other areas so. yeah i like that I th- the, you know, the sales pitch to, to someone who's sort of of that more sort of concrete and foam uh idea that you know you could do all of this and you know as a as a, an unintended consequence you're going to live longer and healthier and you know, you know you're going to be surrounded by <laughs> yeah. nice things it's, yeah yeah it shouldn't be a hard sell no so, uh in the um in that that uh, the white paper, uh, the building is climate change solution. Uh, there was at the end there were some case studies about uh, different homes that that you've built, and there was a big range in difference in uh, how much carbon there was sequestered. So you know from ranging from twenty four kilograms uh, up to sort of three hundred and sixty. I mean, what was the why why what was the the cause of the, the sort of big difference there um it it would it's sort of you know they all all of those buildings had a f- quite a bit of stored carbon in the form of straw or cellulose or hemp or you know whatever whatever the materials happen to be but um some of them also had um you know like this house here we also have a basement in it and so uh, there's a concrete floor in the basement. We have a, a sort of insulated concrete form system uh, that's a wood chip based system, but the you know it still has concrete in it. Um, you know things like metal roofing. Some of those buildings have a, a like some portions of metal siding on the outside. So it's always you know it's it's sort of a balancing act of you know we're not we're not just building with plants like there's 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 always glass involved and there's always some metal involved and there's always you know not always concrete but sometimes there's concrete involved and so when you you know 
add up those ledgers depending on how much of the emitting materials you've used the the storage that you're contributing is going to either show up as a larger number or a smaller number depending on what it's being used to offset so really i mean you've got to be be on it with looking at all of your materials and and really yeah yeah and i guess that leads us really nicely to the um the the beam building emissions accounting materials did i say that right yep accounting for materials yep Yes. Um, So what's what's that about? So, yeah, that's out of out of all this research and work I've been doing on the carbon footprint. So, yeah, you mentioned my thesis. I went back to school to kind of, you know, do this study on on upfront emissions. And in doing that, I kind of amassed a pretty big data bank of, uh, you know, the embodied carbon numbers for like 400 different residential building materials and I realized, and then I built it into a spreadsheet to do these calculations for the thesis buildings. And then I started realizing, oh, like I have this spreadsheet with all of this stuff. Um, if I if I rethought it, uh, I could make it so that you could input any building and you know check choose the materials you want to use and get get an answer. And so that that's kind of um, over the last year. Um, we've decided to kind of turn that into a, a publicly available tool called Beam, which should be launching in probably May. So we're getting getting close to that. So it'll be it's shifted from a spreadsheet to an online app, and you know we've built in lots of cool functions that my original clunky spreadsheet didn't have. But um, you know, at heart, what I really like about it, and what all of our beta testers have liked, is that it starts by putting in the kind of overall dimensions of your building and some of the sort of building geometry. But then as you, as you go to choose the materials for your building, you already see what the carbon footprint of all the options in, in that section. So if I'm looking at flooring or I'm looking at roofing or insulation, when I get to that part of the calculator, it's like, Oh, I, I need 150 square meters of cladding here's 20 different cladding options at a hundred square meters. Here's the carbon footprint. And so it's this great sort of way of seeing the difference between all of these materials, you know, all equalized for the same amount of coverage on your building. So if, if it's brick, it's this thick. And if it's metal, it's this thick, but it's, it's all been, you know, uh, equalized so that, you're actually seeing the results for the amount of that material it would take to cover that much area on your building. And so it's this kind of like, it's a useful tool because it gets you this answer, but it's also this great educational tool because here's all the options and you can kind of see them from highest carbon footprint to lowest carbon footprint, you know, in one glance. And so it, it really helps people kind of go, oh, I didn't know if I changed from this to that, it would have that big a difference, but it, it kind of inspires that that kind of substitution where, you know, you can really see that one simple choice makes a difference of like sometimes several tons of emissions for one little building. Yeah. I, it sounds like it's almost a kind of a shopping list, but instead of a price, there's, you know, the exactly, environmental yeah. price. It's, yeah. Yeah. It's because I've, I've been a big advocate of uh, foam glass uh, underneath uh, sort of slab earthen yep. floors. And I've just found out exactly how much uh, embodied energy that's got. And I'm like, oh, no. <laughs> so it's- <laughs> well, it's interesting because the, there's the foam glass that's made into sheets. 
that is really high, there's the 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 foam glass sort of gravel mm-hmm. is a fraction of the embodied carbon. And I don't know if it's what the difference in the processing is, but all four companies that make the gravel, it's it's way, way, way like it's the lowest carbon option, you know, in the calculator, but the foam glass sheets are sort of like a mid-range option. Um, not sure why that is, but it's consistent across all of the different products. So it's the, it seems to be a thing, but yeah, we just started using the, 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 the sort of foam glass gravel and, uh, really happy with that. And it's, it's got a really low carbon footprint. Yes. Oh, well that's, that's good to hear because yeah, I've pretty much exclusively used the gravel. Uh, and yeah, to me, it's a, it's a wonder material, you know, Mm -hmm. yeah. Moisture can only travel in one direction. It's lightweight. It's easy to yeah. install. You know, it compacts nicely. Yeah, it's nice when it, it it replaces something else too. It's like, I used to have to put gravel, then insulation. Now I just put one thing and it's doing yeah. both. <laughs> I've actually saved a step, yeah. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Um, well, I can't wait for that that uh, calculator to come out. Um, that really mm-hmm. sounds like it's going to be like a, an invaluable tool. Yeah. Well, do we want do you want to talk a little bit about your what you're writing at the moment? Is that a thing you can talk about? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I'm I'm getting towards the end of the manuscript for a book that I'm co-authoring with Bruce King. So he wrote a book a few years ago called The New Carbon Architecture. And I contributed a chapter to that. And we kind of decided to collaborate on a it's not really an update of that book. It's sort of a um rethinking it on an even a larger scale um but it's called uh build beyond zero and it's it's you know basically a book about what i was just talking about can we actually transform not just the hippie buildings of the world but all the buildings of the world to be carbon storing and what would it take to do that and what are the the technologies and the hurdles and the you know the 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 life cycle analysis issues and like all of those sorts it's a it's a deep dive into you know, literally, can we can we turn the building industry from an emitter to a storer? And so it's fun. It's it's uh, hopefully will be kind of inspirational and, uh, and kind of lay out a, a you know a bit of a a bit of a path forward. You know, okay, mm-hmm. if we want to do this, what needs to happen? Yeah, yeah. It's it, it's been good. It's been really great to uh, you know to get a chance to really to. I think about it all the time, but it, you know, the way you think changes when you have to really write it all down and plan it out and like, Oh yeah, what does this look like? And how do all of these things relate and who needs to be talking to who and what, you know, how does, you know, we, we look at, at the regulatory side and the manufacturing side and the design side and like how, how do all these things potentially contribute to this? Yeah. Um, yeah. I wanted to say that uh, you're making better buildings book is is like my number one recommendation for for everyone oh great hey so here's something we could talk about then we just put we we just put the the whole making better buildings book online okay. on the new endeavor website it's all there so it's now free and searchable and accessible um the whole thing so we called it the sustainable materials encyclopedia and it's yeah it's now now nobody has to buy the book they can just <laughs> go use the website for free <laughs> oh you've you've done yourself out of the out of the royalties <laughs> but uh, for the greater good yeah well, i won't be able to 
buy a bag of chips, you know, from the royalties anymore. So. <laughs> I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Oh my goodness. How good was that? Huge thanks to Chris for taking the time we had to book in the episode recording months in advance. Um, he is a busy man. So thank you, Chris, for uh, for making a hole in your schedule. Um, as per usual, there is loads of links uh, to the items discussed in the show notes. Uh, and I think for those listening on Spotify, those show notes sometimes don't work. So you might want to head to the Building Sustainability Podcast website. That is Building Sustainability Podcast. I just wanted to talk uh, a little bit about one of the features I loved in Chris's home that we didn't get to speak about, and that is a wastewater heat recovery system. So when you're having a shower, all of your hot water goes down the drain and is wasted. So Chris's incoming water pipe is coiled around the shower outlet pipe. So all that hot water running down the drain then heats up the incoming water, so less energy is needed to bring the uh, the water tank up to the correct temperature. I think that detail shows you just how finely Chris is looking at the buildings and how we can make them more efficient. I'll stick a link to uh, a video where Chris shows that system in the, the show notes. Okay, I also want to tell you that soon we'll be having a an episode specifically on the living building challenge uh, that chris touched on um so that is something to look out for and also i just want to end with two little tiny tips uh just how you can save the world in just a little micro way uh, and that is one buy the little sad lonely bananas that are left on the shelf when everyone's ripped the bunches apart because they're the ones that are probably going to go in the bin so you can save them from being food waste. And secondly, unsubscribe to all of those emails that you get. I've been doing this over the last few months. And not only does it feel great to know that that you're reducing the amount of energy from the, the sort of server racks that are sending out all these millions of emails, but it also reduces digital clutter. And I think that can only just make you feel better. So there you go. Micro tips. Um, I think that's it for me. Remember to subscribe and never miss an episode. Uh, head to the Patreon site if you want to support. And if you don't have any money, the absolute best thing you could be doing 
is share this episode, share it wide and far, and hopefully together we can save the world with buildings. Okay, stay safe, everybody. Oh, and just for Tom Fell, nice. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.